Many churches, uh, perhaps especially in the States, uh, they have uh, church bulletins which will record the uh, numbers attending uh, on the previous Sundays and also the givings. And I think part of the idea is to keep everybody on their toes and to make sure that things are, are on an upward uh, movement. And it would be interesting to visualize what the, the bulletin said in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, uh, the month during which Paul made his visit. It might have gone something like this, first Sabbath in the month, uh, attendance 40, second Sabbath, attendance 39, brackets one died, third Sunday, third Sabbath of the month, attendance 6,934, uh, because there was an explosion uh, when Paul came to preach in the synagogue, uh, that, that second preaching, uh, everybody came. Uh, there were people uh, gr- jammed into the building, <coughs> standing outside, uh, mothers with babes in arms, grandfathers, slaves, and runaways, Jews and Greeks, merchants and teachers, soldiers, bakers, tanners, farmers, Everyone came to hear uh, what Paul had to say. Uh, This was the sermon that shook a city, turned a city upside down. And I reckon that if it did that in Pisidian Antioch, it's pretty well worth our uh, careful study to see why it had such an impact on those that heard it first. Paul and his companions have... uh, been embarking on a missionary journey, and this map maybe helps us to get a, a handle on the geography. They left Antioch, which you'll see is it's way up on the eastern side of the Mediterranean, quite a distance from Jerusalem down at the bottom, and they sailed from Antioch and went to Cyprus. And there were three of them at this point. There was uh, Paul, and there was Barnabas, who came from Cyprus, and therefore it was a, an obvious place to go. Uh, But they also had John Mark with them. Uh, Then they left Cyprus and they went up to what is now called uh, Turkey. They went to Perga and then up uh, to the town that is called uh, Antioch in Pisidia or Pisidian Antioch. Now when they arrived at the coastal plain of what is called Asia Minor in the New Testament, we would call it Turkey today. Uh, This was Paul's uh, home base. He came from Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey. They had a setback shortly after they arrived uh, on shore uh, because John Mark decided that he wasn't for going on any further. Uh, If you look forward at chapter 15, verse 38, uh, you discover that it was actually a very traumatic time. At this point... In the description of the journey, it's simply recorded in a very matter-of-fact style that uh, John or John Mark uh, went back to return to Jerusalem in verse 13. But in chapter 15, you see that there was a, a big disagreement, a very heated disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. It was a desertion. And later on, uh, when they go on their second missionary journey, Paul is not of a mind to take John Mark with them because he let them down uh, in Asia Minor. 
He's not willing to risk, to, to hazard the important work of God's mission uh, by entrusting it to someone who has uh, not stepped up to the mark on his first uh, encounter with missionary work. Barnabas, on the other hand, is willing to give him the second chance. Barnabas and John Mark were actually cousins. Barnabas, son of encouragement, uh, typically wants to give uh, John Mark the second chance. And this evening, we're going to be looking at the, the last chapter of Colossians. And we're going to see in the, the register of people who are giving their greetings to the Colossians, someone by the name of John Mark, back in the fold, back recognized as someone who is of great use to Paul in his ministry. We don't know why John Mark turned back. Uh, the reason's not given. Possibly it was because of the arduous conditions. Uh, Pamphylia, through which they had to pass, was noted for being uh, a malaria-ridden part of the world. Possibly uh, he either fell sick or didn't want to take the risk. In any case, uh, he turned back uh, at Perga. After this parting of the ways, Paul and Barnabas travel 100 miles inland uh, over the Taurus Mountains, uh, rising to 3,500 feet, and to a town called Pisidian Antioch. <coughs> you see at the very top of uh, the, uh, the Blue Route, which was the capital of the area known as Southern Galatia. In other words, this was one of the towns where there were believers who would receive the letter that was written to the Galatians. Paul and Barnabas, arriving in Pisidian Antioch, uh, go to the synagogue when the Sabbath comes round. Because this was their pattern. They would go to the synagogue and they would proclaim uh, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in Jesus Christ and his resurrection went into the synagogue and the pattern of synagogue worship would be something like this. There would be the reciting of a creed, uh, what they call the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God and so on. There would be prayer, a reading from the law and another from the prophets, an exposition of the readings and an application and then the benediction. And if there was a recognized teacher uh, in the midst, in the gathering, uh, then they would be invited to come forward. Uh, so uh, if you were a visiting minister, you were in a precarious position, you could be asked to come forward at any point. And so it happened with Paul. And this is the first example that we have of Paul's preaching. And Paul's preaching was always geared to the, the situation of his audience. Uh, it's instructive to look at how Paul deals differently with uh, the people, whether they are Jews or whether they are Gentiles. Paul's preaching here is a very different sermon from the preaching that we have in Acts 17, when he's speaking to the Greek philosophers who've got no knowledge of, of Jewish uh, history in the Old Testament. Uh, it's geared uh, to his, his Jewish audience. He's concerned to show them that the gospel is for them. Uh, he's going to tell them how the God of the people of Israel has acted in history to bring to Israel 
the Saviour long promised, the Saviour who is Jesus. And although this sermon has got a strongly Jewish flavour to it, it's obviously of relevance uh, to all of us. And this is how it is uh, divided up. We have, first of all, uh, the uh, Paul pointing to the king of history. God is king of history. And then uh, that's verses 16 to 25. Then verses 26 to 37. The coming of the king to his earth. And then verses 38 to 42, he confronts us with the choice that everyone faces of whether or not we serve this king who has come to his earth. Then verses 42 to 52, uh, the results of his preaching, the mixed response. God is the king of history, the king of history. Uh, What Paul preaches up there in Pisidian Antioch, all the way up in Turkey, is very similar to the sermon that Stephen preached uh, before uh, those who were about to kill him. And it's interesting that that should be the case because Paul, or Saul as he was known, was an eyewitness. He heard that sermon. And no doubt that sermon made a big impact on him. And when he uh, preaches this very significant sermon in Pisidian Antioch, uh, we see, we hear echoes of the sermon of Stephen. And his aim is to show his Jewish listeners that they are a privileged people, but their privilege relates to the promise that it will be through the Jews and for the Jews first that the Saviour is promised. All of their ritual, all of their outward observances are beside the point unless they believe in the Messiah that was promised. Because the whole of the Old Testament is simply working up to the point when Messiah will come. And so Paul's purpose throughout this sermon is to show them that the writings and the law and the prophets are all pointing to the Jesus who, who came, who was born in Bethlehem, was brought up in Nazareth, who was crucified in Jerusalem, and who was raised to life on the third day. And unless they recognize the Messiah as their Savior, they are missing the point altogether. And all of their privileges will be null and void because their privileges in receiving the scriptures, the covenants, the law, were all in preparation for the coming of Jesus. Now that's true of you as well today. It's true of all of us that no matter how rich our privileges have been religiously, no matter how much background we have, no matter how much knowledge we have in our heads, unless we have appropriate, unless we've believed in Jesus as our saviour in a personal way, so no use to us. Won't save us. Won't make any difference in the end of the day, unless we have a living personal faith in Jesus Christ that is shaping our lifestyle. Unless we're following Him day by day. Well, Paul uh, enumerates the, the special privileges that they that they have. Uh, they had first of all the the patriarchs. God had chosen the patriarchs 
uh, the founding father Abraham and his children, God, the God of Israel, chose our fathers. And God did that in grace. There was nothing in this man Abraham that uh, should endear him to God. He was an obscure character living in a family that practiced idolatry. But God in his grace chose Abraham. By God's grace, the people, Paul says, went down into Egypt. And there they prospered. They multiplied and they prospered. With mighty power, God in his grace delivered them from Egypt when they had been made slaves. And by grace, he was patient with them in the desert when they backslid against him. By his grace, he brought them into Canaan and gave them the promised land. And by his grace, he raised up judges for them when they rebelled against him and went their own way. When they cried out for a king, God gave them first of all Saul and then David, their king, a man after God's own heart. And then in his sermon, Paul jumps straight forward to David's greater son, uh, the king, Jesus, who was descended from David. Jesus, uh, who was, whose way was prepared by John the Baptist. Now, that was the summary of Paul's message. What's striking about Paul's message is the fact that uh, it is so God-centered. Uh, God is the king of history. He is the one who is directing history. And all the way through Paul's sermon, uh, we're told that it's God who's acting. God chose Abraham. God led his people out of Egypt. God gave them kings and so on and so on. It's all God-centered. Now, if you read any ordinary history book from the library or from the bookstore, the perspective is very different. It's about the men and women who shape history. It's about Alexander the Great. It's about Stalin and Hitler and Churchill and so on. People who have seemingly directed history's course. But the Bible's perspective is very different. Uh, God is the one who is driving history. And Paul is reminding his hearers of this great fact. Behind all that has been in their history is, has been the mighty hand of God. He has been moving history and he's been moving it forward to this climax. Which is the coming of the Messiah. And history has reached this climax. And they have failed to recognize it. And they must recognize it uh, if they are to be saved. Two very obvious things then. Uh, God uh, is the God of history. And the Christian message is rooted in history. It's rooted in real history. Uh, it's not, not just a myth that conveys some kind of message. It can be related to the outside facts of so-called secular history. Look, 
who is recording the events in Acts, tells us at the beginning of his gospel that he has carefully researched the details, that he has depended upon eyewitness accounts. Uh, we're told in the gospels that these things can be, can be verified. It is not a woolly philosophy that can't be disproven because it's not grounded in fact. Christianity is about the God who acts in history, who reaches out to real men and real women with real lives living in space and time. He is the God of history. And because he is the God of history, history has a purpose. And our lives have a purpose. Paul is connecting with his listeners because he's telling them that they, especially they as Jewish listeners, have a purpose in God's plan. They fit into God's plan. Their lives have purposefulness. History has purpose, is what the Bible tells us. Now, a lot of people today don't really believe that. A lot of Eastern religions don't teach that history has a purpose. They, they think of, of uh, history as, as going round in circles. It's circular. It's not a straight line moving towards a destination. It's going round and round and round. And in our day, uh, New Age thinking, in all of its various guises, has picked up on this. And so uh, it leads many people to despair of of history having uh, any purpose and their life having any goal. And even if we don't think consciously in these terms, people simply become cynical of life. Uh, They see all kinds of uh, threats uh, around us that lead them to believe that the world is not going anywhere. People are really worried about the destruction of the environment. They're cynical about politics and political leaders, about materialism, moral decline. They're cynical because one so-called saviour after another doesn't deliver. And so uh, they come to the conclusion that there's no real purpose uh, in history. And the Bible tells us that there is a God who is directing history. There is a God who from the beginning planned to send a saviour. There is a book in which God reveals himself. And in the very earliest pages of that book, the saviour is promised. And throughout history, God is preparing the way for Jesus. History is his story. The wonderful thing is, When we believe in this God and in the Son he sent us, our lives take on a wonderful purpose. We become part of God's plan to bring in his kingdom. We become part of the the way by which God is touching lives. We have a message to share with the world all of a sudden our life takes on a new meaning. 
want to pause at this point and just ask you if you understand that, if that is true of the way that you see your life. There's all kinds of different things that we can look to to have our, our, our sense of purpose in life. We can look into our family and think that we'll have purpose and meaning in our families. Or many people look to their jobs and they, they think that if they are getting on well in their jobs, if they're climbing the, the career ladder, making a contribution in some way, that that is purpose enough. Well, these things are good, good in themselves, but none of them are an ultimate purpose. You were not made simply for family or for career or for pleasure. That is not your chief end, in other words. But your chief end is to be part of God's great purpose. And to glorify him by serving him. And advancing his kingdom. What a thrill it is to, to find meaning in life like that. To be swept into God's great purpose. To have some high meaning to your life. Rather than to simply pursue petty goals. Or to... To feel like your life is nothing but a drab routine. Well Paul uh, moves on from uh, speaking about uh, the history of the Jews especially. And its meaning uh, to reminding them that the great focal point of history came about in the arrival of the king. The king has come. He has come to his earth. And as Paul moves on to the second point in his sermon, again he picks out two key points, two key things that he says about this king. First of all, uh, he speaks about the death uh, of the, the king. And secondly, his resurrection. As regards the death of Jesus, Paul says... That it was according to promise, that it was as a sinless substitute, and in particular it was death on a tree. First of all, the people, even although they refused to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, should realize that all of the promises in the Old Testament were being fulfilled in Jesus. In rejecting Jesus, they would be rejecting the very scriptures that they read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Secondly, uh, Jesus died as a sinless substitute. The people could find uh, no proper ground for a death sentence, Paul tells them in verse 28. He was tried before Pilate. And Pilate could find no reason for putting Jesus to death. Though he went through a judicial process and ended up being executed, there was ironically no ground for that verdict. He was sinless. He was the sinless son of God. But Paul also says that he died on a tree. They took him down from a tree. Now, we wonder why, why speak about the cross in this unusual way? Because it wasn't li a literal tree, was it? But Paul, you chooses his words carefully because he knows that these <coughs> Jewish listeners will pick up on the mention of one being hung on a tree and realize that the Old Testament spoke of that being a, 
a cursed death. Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. So this Jesus died a cursed death. He was bearing a, a divine curse on himself in his death. He was bearing the guilt and filthiness of human sin as a substitute. But, secondly, God raised him up from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. Now, if you listen to some uh, modern uh, liberal theologians today, many of them talk about the resurrection uh, as though it was a kind of myth uh, to to speak about some uh, vague uh, hope for the future, a kind of homespun story to keep the dream alive. But the New Testament makes it clear that the resurrection was an observable fact. People were witnesses, eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. It was an evidence that God gave that the satisfaction to sin that Jesus gave on the cross was accepted. The penalty that he bore, God was pleased to accept for sin. See, the cross is only good news because we know, because of the resurrection, that God accepted what Jesus had done on the cross. Otherwise, it would have been a tragic death. But Jesus rose in power and was seen by many. And that, Paul says, is conclusive proof that when Jesus died for sin, his death did what he set out for it to do. It paid the debt of sin. God accepted the price and he proved it by raising him publicly from the dead. Now, Paul says, you folks are faced with a choice because the king who died and is raised again summons you now to obedience. There are two ways to live. There is a dividing of the way. It's always the case with the gospel. You're never left with the luxury of being indifferent to the gospel whenever it's preached. It always forces a a response. There's always a dividing of the way. We either respond in faith or we reject. We become softened by the gospel and draw near to Christ or we're hardened and move further away. What's the choice? Well, on the one hand... By believing in Christ, the audience that Paul addressed and the audience that God addresses this morning may know forgiveness of sins and justification. I want you to know that through Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Two things. Forgiveness. Justification. Forgiveness of sins. This core need that we have to have all of the wrong in our lives wiped away. To be made clean. To know that though we've not gone God's way and have rebelled against him, that 
has been forgiven by God. Sin spoils our lives. It's Satan's trump card. He uses our sin to rob us of our freedom. Sin will always shackle uh, us. It will be like handcuffs which bind us to a, a guilty past. And Satan loves to tell people that they can never break free from their past. That they are condemned by their past. Doomed by their past. And the gospel tells us we can be set free. We can know forgiveness. It tells us too that we can be justified. We can have a new status before God. And Paul says it's something that could never happen through the law itself. Because you can try and be as morally good as you can. You can devote yourself to good works. You can try to avoid every appearance of evil. But you will never be just uh, in the, the sense that fits you for heaven. But because Jesus died 2,000 years ago. And because he rose an acquitted man. We who have faith in him rise also to a new life and we are acquitted people. Acquitted people. When a soldier is in the army, uh, he can receive a a certificate of discharge from the army, which will tell uh, the world that the army no longer holds him uh, under any obligation. He's acquitted from his military obligations. He's been discharged. Now, uh, if he messes up when he's in the army, it's a dishonorable uh, discharge. The man or the woman have actually actually been kicked out of the military. But if if somebody uh, serves honorably, uh, then the certificate is one of honorable discharge. God gives us an honorable discharge Through faith in Christ. Because he loves us. And has given us Christ. For us. Sin no longer has any hold on us. We are as perfected as Christ himself. Because faith places us into Christ. We are acquitted from all of the the, the hold of sin. It's an honourable discharge. Because God has upheld justice. In the death of his son. No one could ever point to God. And say to God. Oh you let people who are guilty off the hook. God. Has dealt with our sin. He has paid the debt. In his son Jesus. So that's, that's the one side. Of it. But the other side of course. Is that. We don't believe. We don't accept. We don't receive. Paul picks up. Uh, the words of Habakkuk the prophet to the people of his own day and Habakkuk speaks to those who are rejecting God's word and addresses them as scoffers which is basically what people do who who hear the gospel and turn aside and don't believe they're scoffing at God Habakkuk warned the people of his day that they would face undescribable consequences and that's true for all who reject The offer of salvation. If we refuse to put our trust in Christ. Then we fall into judgment. The the outlook is horrendous. Indescribably bad. If we will not allow Jesus to pay for our sins. Then we must pay for our sins 
eternally ourselves. And then the consequences of this powerful sermon. As always, there was a mixed response. First of all, many of the Jews and Gentiles actually believed. Uh, Verse 43 tells us that they uh, asked Paul and Barnabas to come and preach again. Thirdly, the Jews uh, who didn't believe, but who saw many Gentiles in the city turning to Christ, became jealous. uh, And they began to speak against what Paul was saying. This isn't a failure of the the word of God, a failure of the gospel. It's what the gospel always does. It shows what's in the human heart. It uh, makes clear the division that runs through humanity. And there were those who opposed the gospel. And they rejected uh, God's messengers and opposed uh, the message of eternal life. Those that believe are described uh, in verse 48 as having been appointed for eternal life. Uh, They were chosen by God. And those who believe, while we trust in Christ, we can't take the credit to ourselves. It's God's electing love that draws us to himself. God who reaches out and who snatches people like brands from the burning. But those who reject God can't blame God for that rejection. Paul's clear about that. Uh, He places responsibility uh, solely upon their shoulders. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Well, people may go to Turkey today for holidays, but this was no holiday tour for Paul. This was uh, a journey which was marked with danger, uh, which was marked with uh, great trauma in, in the city of Pisidian Antioch, And behind the scenes, intrigue and blackmail as jealous Jews incited those who were the power brokers in the city to expel Paul and Barnabas from it. And on the surface, it might look like a setback for the gospel. It might look a setback for Paul and Barnabas. But look look at the reality of what's happening. Verse 40, but the word of the Lord spread through The whole region. Paul and Barnabas are kicked out. But God's word is set free. It spreads through the region. And the disciples aren't discouraged. They are filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You get the real impression, don't you? These are men who have found real purpose in their lives. They have something which is worth giving They're all four. And back in the city, back in Pisidian Antioch, this city that was turned upside down by this sermon, there are many more who found a new joy in their lives because the word of the Lord has been fruitful in their hearts. May it be fruitful also in our hearts as we respond in our way and in our day to this message. Let's bow our heads in prayer together. Father, we bless and praise you for the power of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that it it comes with the the dynamic of the Holy Spirit, that it it exposes the the hidden thoughts of people, 
Uh, it exposes hardness of heart, pride, the assertion of our own authority against yours. But we thank you that it is powerful too to melt hearts, to draw people to Jesus and to find in him forgiveness of sins and justification. Thank you for this powerful message. And we pray, Lord, that we will know it in our own hearts and know its reality and be confident in it and share it with those around us, those who work with us, those who are in our families, those we love and care for. And may, Lord, you grant the increase and grant us joy both in believing and in sharing. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.